0: Hey this morning we're uh, beginning to journey through the book of Colossians, uh, a series of messages uh, for a, maybe a couple of months on the book of Colossians. It's been a while since we've gone straight through a book of the Bible, and this is a good thing to do, a really good practice. Too often Christians read uh, a verse out of the scriptures or sometimes a passage or several verses or even a whole chapter and pull those out of the Bible and read them on their own But the Bible wasn't meant to be read that way, out of context. And it can sometimes be a dangerous thing to do. Most of the books on our shelves, we would not read that way. And the Bible and the books of the Bible weren't intended to be read that way either, except for maybe the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. But the rest of the scriptures are intended to be read Kind of a book at a time. Here's a book, read through the entire book. So this is a good discipline for us to do. I encourage you to stick with us for this series. If you're going to miss a Sunday or some Sundays, uh, you can listen online to whoever's preaching. Uh, I encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to our podcast and that way it's easier to kind of stay in touch. You'll get the big whole picture. And now, just a brief introduction to the book of Colossians. Here are a few good things to know about the book before we get into it. Uh, Colossians was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a community of Christians or a church in the city of Colossae, which was kind of grouped together with a couple of other churches in what was then called Asia Minor, is today called Turkey. Paul did not plant the church in Colossae as he did plant many of the churches that he later writes to, but Paul was familiar with the church in Colossae and was excited about what was going on there. He was a partner of a man named Epiphras who very much was involved with nurturing and pastoring the church in Colossae and he will be mentioned a couple of times in this book. But Paul's a great cheerleader of the church in the first century. He's got a pastor's heart he wants to encourage, he's excited about, his heart is just overflowing with what he sees God doing throughout the Roman world at that time. The reason for Paul's letter was not just to say hello, but also and especially to encourage the Christians in Colossae and to respond to some false teachings there, as was common in Paul's letters. Some false teachings, various ones that had taken root and were beginning to grow in Colossae. And because Paul loved the church, he wanted them to have a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus, of God, of life. And so he writes this book. That's a little overview. Uh, Before we read, let's pray together. God, help us to be fully attentive to your word, to your will, and to your way, to you. Give us hearts that are good and receptive soil to receive the words and your word. Give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, may they be heard, ingested, held on to. If my words in any way deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray with gratitude and hope in Christ the Lord. Amen. So, reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 1, listen closely. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, And Timothy, our brother. And this was Paul's normal way of starting a letter in that day. To identify oneself as Paul does. Not only who he is, but why he is writing and what his calling is. He had been called by God to be an apostle. And we talked last week as we saw in Acts Chapter one and two, how an apostle is someone more than a disciple, an apostle is someone who is specifically sent or sent out, who goes as a messenger, as a bearer of Christ. And this was Paul's calling, and this was not his calling by his own will, he says, but by the will of God. Paul did not choose himself to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he understood that to be from God, by God. And that seems pretty clear when we remember Paul's journey. He was a persecutor, anti-church, anti-Christian. When God arrests him, speaks to him, blinds him, bright light, throws him down, and then immediately heals him of that through one of the brothers in Christ, making him uh, a whole new transformed person. So none of this was Paul's own choosing, all of it was God's doing, so Paul understands himself to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Verse 2, two gods, holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, and holy here doesn't mean good, pure, upright, righteous, as much as it means set apart, devoted, Uh, identified as people who are in Christ, which is a small but significant phrase that Paul coined and that Paul loves to describe the reality of life in, through, and by Jesus Christ, being immersed in Jesus, belonging to Jesus, rescued and saved by Jesus, being fully alive in Him, in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And while it was normal in that day and age for Jews to greet one another with the word peace, shalom in Hebrew, Paul added to that traditional Jewish greeting the word grace, which described his own experience with God through Jesus, God's unmerited favor, blessing and love. And so he wishes in most of his letters, he begins by wishing God's grace to and upon those who will read his letters. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in you. for for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you see that Paul did not do well in grammar in school. It's almost one long continuous sentence which Paul has the tendency to do. And as I read through that earlier this week, I thought, what? In my ADD brain, I'm overloaded confused and unable to take in all that Paul says in his uh, speaking, writing, without taking a breath. And I found myself more than once asking, what is Paul saying? What is going on here? What is he trying to communicate? It just feels like this jumble of wonderful words, but a jumble, none the least. How can I break this down? And I decided that maybe the easiest way this morning with the time we have, is to start at the end and kind of work our way backwards a little bit to get our arms and our minds around this passage. Here we go. God loves his son. The father loves the son. Within the triunity of God, the father loves the son. Verse 13. And God loves us. God loves humanity who live in darkness, who have lived in darkness, who have entered darkness. But there is another kingdom, another reality, another realm that is better in every way than the darkness in which we dwell. It is called the kingdom of light, verse 12. It belongs to Jesus. It is his kingdom. Of it, he is the king, verse 13. What got us and all of humanity into the kingdom of darkness was our sin, our disobedience, our pride, our self absorption, our disregard for God and His way and His love, our greed, our lust, our envy, gluttony, ambivalence, sloth, self interest, self absorption, on and on. And what can get us out of the kingdom of darkness is not doing better or getting better, or being better. We are not capable of getting good enough, being good enough, becoming good enough. We are too far gone. Our record is too long. The depth of our depravity is too deep and too wide, infecting all of our thoughts and motivations. We cannot extricate ourselves from the kingdom of darkness, which we tend to choose over and over anyway. We cannot free ourselves from the chains, liberate ourselves from ourselves. The hold that sin has on us is too great. The charges are too many the only way out. And there is a way out. The only way out is through forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins, 14, which is our redemption. And that redemption, the buying back, the exchanging of one thing for another, the bad for the good, in this case, the giving of a new, pure, holy, unblemished life for blemished lives comes through Jesus. Verse 13, Paul declares, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. God has done that already. And God, quote, has qualified the Colossians. And us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Verse 12, by and through the cross of the son he loves, God has changed our status in the system. I don't know if you ever run into this online when you are trying to access something. By and through the cross of the son he loves, God has changed our status from unqualified To qualified, from unregistered to registered, from illegitimate to loved, from orphan to family member, from guilty to innocent, from lost to found. And God has done all of this by grace through faith. As we will see when we back up through this passage, all of this is by grace. In the words of our memory verse last week, which maybe some of you can say together with me, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We had no chance apart from the grace of God. By the grace of God, we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, Paul writes. And so Paul rejoices, He absolutely rejoices. If we listen, it's just not the speed of his words, but he can't catch a breath. Because he's full of gladness. He's full of joy at what's going on here, at what he sees, at what he is witnessing. He's in a state of perpetual elation at the faith of the church, the people in Colossae, people coming to faith and their whole lives being renewed and opened up to the God of love. And now rewind back to verse 3. We always thank God for the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard and the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has told us of your love in the Spirit. Epiphras has bubbled over in what he has told Paul. And through Epaphras' faithful ministry. And through God's spirit. Paul says. Who fills with love and who gives to people wisdom. The Colossians learned. And truly understood God's grace. They truly understood God's grace. Verse 6. In short, In a short time. They were further along than many people are after a lifetime in the church today, after a lifetime in Christianity today. People who believe still in the church that Christianity or churchianity or religion is about good works, about being good, becoming good enough and so pretense and pride and earning God's favor and becoming worthy of God's love. The Colossians already had what we might consider religious options all around them. They were surrounded by false gods and false deities that demanded obedience and offerings if those gods or idols were going to bless them. And that was no gospel at all. That was religion by good works that ends up in pride, that ends up in An endless cycle of never being good enough but trying nonetheless. But the Colossians had come to understand that God loves people just the way they are and not the way they should be because they will never be the way they should be. And God loves us not the way we should be because we will never be the way we should be. But as we are, that's the gospel of grace. There should be cheering now. God set out to rescue people from the dominion of darkness, not because they love God, but because God loved them, because God is love. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they had learned all of this from the dear and faithful Epiphas, verse 7. But not only had they been rescued by the gospel of grace, but the gospel had been growing in and through them and bearing fruit, verse 6, Even expanding to different parts of the world there's this revolution of grace and one of the epicenters of it at that time was Colossae. The revolution of grace that God initiated through Jesus and that was infecting and transforming individuals, families, neighborhoods, communities, cities and the world was growing and the punishing, retributive, hopeless Hard work and cold justice of the world was being overcome, one person and one heart at a time by the gospel of grace. And this understanding of God's gospel of grace and their hope of heaven and glory, derived from God's gospel of grace, verse 5, produced in the Colossians, it produced in the Colossians two things trust. In Jesus, it says faith, but it really helps us to understand that word by, underst- by hearing it as trust in Jesus. And love for all of God's people, which may refer to all people everywhere who are in Christ. But either way, the Colossians' accurate understanding of the gospel of grace produced within them. Trust in Jesus and love for other people, which in so many ways are the two legs that authentic Christians stand on. Trust in Jesus as Savior, Lord, Messiah, Son of God, and love for other people, love for one's neighbors, love for the world. And hearing of this reality leads Paul, one, to continually thank God, to continually thank God, and two, to continually pray very specifically for the Christians in Colossae. Verse three, we always thank God the Father, we always thank God the Father. And our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people, verse 9, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you, dot, dot, dot. Paul's opening and continual disposition is one of gratitude he thanks God for what God has done and is doing and will do in the lives of the Colossians and for the Colossians Paul thanks God for Jesus and for the spirit Paul thanks God for the good things and the seemingly not so good things also and he is able to do so and he does so because as he wrote to the Romans In all things, in all things, God works for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. In all things, God works for good. And so Paul can continually thank God for everything. Imagine being able to get to such a place in your perspective and in your life and in your activity It feels like to me, at least this is my experience, it may not be yours, that I'm so rarely grateful even though I'm immersed in blessing. The world in which we live, Madison Avenue, everything we see and hear says get more. You don't have enough, be more, you're not enough, grow, expand, achieve. And we forget the abundance and the breadth and the depth of God's grace in which we are already immersed. Imagine getting to a place in one's life as Paul seems to have been or gotten where he continually thanks God, continually. Joyful gratitude we see in Paul is the natural disposition and a fundamental characteristic of a person who is in Christ. Some have even suggested that gratitude is the primary characteristic of the Christian. M. Scott Peck suggested years ago that gratitude is so interconnected with salvation that it is, quote, like salvation or clearly an indicator of salvation. And in literally every chapter in the book of Colossians, as we go through it, we will see Paul encouraging the Christians in Colossians to be thankful, to be thankful. It is a disposition and a practice that he has come to experience by God's grace because of God's grace that he encourages in them as a way of life. And in his joyful gratitude, Paul writes of four things that he continually prays. In other words, asks of God for the Christians in Colossae. One, that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Two, that they might live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. That they might, three, be strengthened with all power according to His glorious, gr- glorious might so that they might have great endurance and patience, that they might be filled with God's power, His Spirit. And four, that they might give joyful thanks themselves to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. And now with those four up on the screen, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of the ways that we pray for one another, because most of the ways that we pray pray for ourselves and request prayer for others, have to do with either our or another person's health, physical well-being, or otherwise well-being, or safety, or two, good fortune in the realm of one's job or career or school or finances or family. I'm going to say that again. Most of the ways that we pray for other people, because most of the ways that people ask for prayer from us, and really most of the ways that we request prayer for other people are for one's personal health or physical well-being or safety, or two, good fortune in the realm of one's job or career or family or finances. But notice how Paul and his co-workers in the gospel pray. Notice how Paul prays in contradistinction to the ways that we so often pray. First, that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. John Calvin wrote in his magnum opus, the the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He began by saying that all sort of wisdom is wrapped up first in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And then he goes on to say, really, you can't know yourself until you know God. So the beginning of all things is the knowledge of God. And in an age of the internet where we are just drowning in information, in our pockets, on our phones, Paul's encouragement and prayer that people know the will of God, that they have knowledge of God's will, is more important than ever. We are smarter and more educated and have more access to information than we have ever been, and yet the world does not know God, much less know God's will. And when we do think or show an interest in knowing God's will, that interest is God, show me how to navigate this particular path I am on. When the scriptures talk about God's will being loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your enemy. Giving generously. Becoming a person of grace. Extending mercy. Caring for the poor. God's will is right there. Paul wants the Colossians to be filled with a knowledge of God's will. Moreover, prayer itself is a means of getting to know God and so God's will. When we know God, we very quickly know God's will. In prayer, we're not so much trying to make God listen to us when we pray rightly as we are trying to make ourselves listen to God. In prayer, we're not trying to persuade God to do what we want him to do as we are trying to find out what he wants us to do. It so often happens that in prayer, we are really saying, thy will be changed. When we ought to be praying, thy will be done. Is it true? Therefore, pray yourself and ask God to fill God's people and to fill yourself, oneself, with a knowledge of God's will and to have that drive oneself, lead. And then Paul says, Paul prays that the Colossians might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. His prayer for the Colossians was to be filled with the knowledge of God is not an end itself. Paul's prayer that they be filled with the knowledge of God and God's will was not an end in itself. Its purpose was not to be smart, to be educated, to get a degree, to have letters after one's name, though there's nothing wrong with such things. But the purpose of the knowledge of God's will was so that a person might live a life that was worthy of or that reflects the goodness and the glory of God in every way. And two, so that a person knowing and understanding God and God's nature and God's character and God's heart and God's will Will bear fruit in every good work so that he or she will be a vessel of God's love, will multiply God's grace in Colossae and San Mateo, will be the hands and feet of Jesus, will do, as Jesus said, even greater and more numerous things than Jesus did by his power and by his grace and by his leading. Dare to pray for others that they might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, not in order to be loved because they are loved, not to become a recipient of God's grace, but because they already are and are filled with God's spirit. Dare to pray for others in that way. Number three, pray that people might be strengthened with all power, in other words, from God's indwelling spirit, so that they might have great endurance and patience. Pray. That one another, that the Colossians, that the San might be filled with God's power, strengthened so that they might have great endurance and patience. And here Paul uses two Greek words that have very similar meanings when they are used apart. But when they are used together, their meanings are distinct. The first word here translated endurance means not only the ability to bear things, but the ability in bearing them to overcome them. It is a conquering patience, it is the ability or the gift to be able to deal triumphantly with anything that life can throw at us. The word translated patience is often translated long-suffering, and it refers to patience with people. It is the quality of mind and heart that enables a person to bear with another person so that their unpleasantness, maliciousness, or cruelty will never drive oneself to bitterness, So that another person's unteachableness and foolishness will never drive oneself to despair. So that another person's unloveliness or unlovingness will never diminish one's love for that person. Are you with me? Patience. It's what you do when you're in line at Target. And the checkout counter. It's, what, it's that thing that you need. And you know that you need it, don't you? As you judge and critique in your mind that dear clerk who's doing the very best she can with a scanner who just doesn't seem to be working. And now think about this. Paul does not pray that the Colossians will be excused from trouble, protected from hardship, Or immune from suffering. That is not necessarily the Christian life. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. Guaranteed. God does not promise us a life free of hardship. That's not the way of Jesus. God does not promise that all of our ailments will be healed. That is the health and wealth gospel or health and wealth lie. God does not promise us success in every area of our lives. That is the prosperity gospel or the prosperity lie. But God does promise to make us strong in heart and mind that we will be able to endure and overcome and persevere and bear with. And love all the way. And that is what Paul prays for the Colossians. And again, I forgot to note at the beginning, Paul is writing from prison. Where he himself is enduring with an attitude of gratitude. God did not spare his own son from temptation and persecution and all manner of hardship and suffering, But the Father supplied the Son with the spiritual resources to endure and to do so with love. And those same spiritual resources or that same grace are available to you and me today. Pray that people might be strengthened with God's power so that they might have great endurance and patience. Amen. And then Paul finally prays in his opening section of remarks. That the Colossians might give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And Paul has experienced great joy himself and overflowing thanksgiving for the grace of God in his life. So much so that he prayed that his brothers and sisters in Colossae might do the same, might have the same, that they might have the same experience because they have been qualified to share in the inheritance of God's holy people in the kingdom of light. The tense is clear. They did not qualify themselves. Someone else did that for them. The Lord had done that for them. They are simply recipients. Think also, a person does not earn an inheritance, do they? An inheritance is given. And the Christians in Colossae had been given everything in Christ, whom we will see next week in the verses that follow immediately this passage. The supremacy of Christ in everything and every way. It was hard to start in these sort of complicated, long-winded, convoluted words of Paul and his introduction To Colossians it was so easy and I was so tempted throughout the week to just jump to verse 15 where all of the good stuff and the glory and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus is described in great detail overflowing by the Apostle Paul Paul points to that now though in this first section as the inheritance that we have been qualified by someone else to receive, and that we will in Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul doesn't pray any of this for the Colossians in a crisis situation. There's no real crisis. There are these misbeliefs that are starting to take root in Colossians, but no major crisis. Paul is praying for this as a part of the regular rhythm of his joy and concern and hope for other Christians. This is regular maintenance prayer that Paul was doing with the Colossians. This is how we can and are called to pray for other people all of the time. So much of our prayer lives consists of saying, I'm praying for you, I'll pray for you, you're in my thoughts and prayers. But clearly Paul does something different and more than that, and more specific than that. And I think one of the things that we get from this introduction, this greeting from Paul is encouragement to pray in the same way for one another as Paul prays for them. So much of our prayer lives are casual and unintentional. God has given us the resources and a knowledge enough of God's will to pray in fuller ways for others. So my encouragement to you, for you, for us as a body, is to do that in our lives and to incorporate such types of prayer as Rod did this morning in praying as we sent out the students. We're not praying only or merely that God protect them or that God give them a rich experience, but God give them the resources to endure and to be patient, to learn, to grow, to be witnesses, to be manifest, to express joy, to live in abiding gratitude. Come what may. Come what may. And we trust that good will come because we are children of the King. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for transferring us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light already done before we even knew it. Almost apart from ourselves, wholly by your grace, made real for us through faith, applied to us through trusting Jesus, and through loving one another as you have loved us. Fill us with a sort of gratitude with which you filled Paul and that he exhibited with great joy. Forgive our ingratitude. Make us as a people grateful in all things. And remind us, prompt us, encourage us by your Spirit to pray in the way of Paul that your kingdom might come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.